Well, Merry Christmas. I mean, you have to have Christmas before you can have Easter, right? And as we talk about the mighty acts of God, certainly one of the the greatest act of all is the incarnation. And so as we continue to walk through the Scriptures and, and, and learn and to reflect on the mighty acts of God, it is significant that today we talk about the birth of Christ, about God becoming man. Brad is painting a beautiful scene from the baptism of Jesus, signifying that God becoming man in this uh, part of our worship expression. We've talked about Adam through the creation, Moses, Abraham, Noah, and seen how God has acted very mightily and specifically throughout history and into our lives. And today, we focus on God becoming man through Christ. Before I get started, I want to make a special invitation to next Sunday as we prepare on that Palm Sunday for Easter Sunday. Next week will be a a significant, a dynamic clash of emotions. We're going to begin with the hallelujahs of Palm Sunday, and we're going to conclude with the darkness of Good Friday. And I want to encourage and challenge you to be here for this significant, this meaningful tenebrae service which our choir and orchestra will lead us as we move closer and closer to the greatest of all the mighty acts, the resurrection of Christ, victory over death, and the promise of new life and of new creation. Over the last weeks, as we've talked about the mighty acts of God, we have have focused or we've talked about what I would call three windows. Three windows into Revelation. And we've seen that, that part of the, the, the purpose behind the mighty acts of God is to reveal Himself to us in ways that we can begin to understand Him. That first mighty act of creation in which God created, in which God revealed Himself to us through the created world, the wonder and the majesty of nature, the world, of even our own creation. So we talk about the mighty act of revelation through creation. But then we also saw how God came to Abraham. And how God began to reveal Himself anew through what we called covenant relationship. Through a people. In relating and getting to know and revealing Himself to a people, God's desire was to reveal Himself to all of us. And so we studied the Old Testament. And we see how God came to that people and revealed Himself and demonstrated and manifested Himself in real ways so that we might know God in even deeper ways. And today, the incarnation, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and the invitation for all to enter saving grace, for all of us to enter into covenant with God. Hebrews 1, 1-3 that we've already heard read, but it's interesting. Again, it says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, God revealing Himself to a people, God revealing Himself to the prophets, in these last days now has spoken to us, has revealed Himself to us through His Son, who is described here as the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of, 
of the nature of the Father. You see, this mighty act of revelation that we call, we call Jesus, that we call incarnation, is that complete way that God finally reveals Himself to us that we might know Him intimately, know who God is. So the question that I would ask is, who is Jesus? Who, who is Jesus to you? If you were asked to, to write a paragraph about who Jesus is, how would you write that paragraph? Let me share a couple that I think are significant. See if you can remember from history who might have said these things. The first, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. Does anyone have an idea of who might have spoken that? They tell me as I read that Napoleon Bonaparte said those words about Jesus. Now certainly one that's not considered a, a, a Christian man, but one who reflected on Christ and on His role in this world. Another one. See if you can remember which piece of literature that this came out of. I believe there is nothing lovelier, deeper, more sympathetic, and more perfect than the Savior. I say to myself with jealous love that not only is there no one else like Him, but there could not be anyone like Him. And I would say even more, if anyone could prove to me that Christ is outside of the truth, and if the truth really did exclude Christ, I would prefer to stay with Christ and not with truth. There is in the world only one figure of absolute beauty, Christ. That infinitely lovely figure is as a matter of course an infinite marvel. Anybody remember where that came from? The brothers Karamazov, as Dostoevsky, related his think, beliefs and reflections on who Christ is. So who is Jesus to you? Who is He? And why did God choose to become man why did Jesus, why did the Son become incarnate? Why did He have to come to earth? Just to give us an example of how to live, of what true personhood, humanity was like? Or did God become man so that He could die in our place, to, to be our salvation, because no one else could? Maybe God became man because He loved us so much that He could not leave us the way we were. And He had mercy upon us coming to, yes, to be an example and, and to die for us and to be salvation for us. Maybe God sent His Son Jesus to reveal and to glorify the Father in ways that just could not and would not be possible without becoming man. I'm reminded of the story of the rancher who had been a long winter and he had come in and he'd been out that morning chopping ice, he'd been out that morning throwing hay and he got back inside to the warmth of his own house and he'd unbundled and was sitting there having a, a cup of coffee after those morning chores. It was bitterly cold outside, the, the snow was still on the ground, the wind was blowing and, and as he was enjoying his coffee, he noticed a thump on the window. 
And every two or three or four minutes, that thump would come back. And, and after a while, he looked up and he saw that it was a bird. It was a bird that was trying to get into the house, into the, the warmth of the house. And, and this farmer, this, this rancher was a compassionate man. And, and so he began to try to shoo the, the bird away. And he had a barn that was not, near, not, not far off. And he, he was hoping that maybe by scaring the bird away from his house, it might find the barn. And then he realized that the door had been shut. He normally left it open so that, that birds could find shelter in these cold times. And so he bundled himself back up and he went back out and he opened the door. And he came back in and sure enough, the bird kept flying into the window. The bird didn't realize the door had been opened and there was warmth and shelter. And in this man's frustration, this rancher's frustration, he thought to himself, you know, if I could just become a bird, I could fly into the barn and show this one bird where safety and shelter is. And in this rancher's simple way of thinking and in his mind, it dawned on him that that, that is exactly what God did by becoming the Son, by becoming Jesus and coming to this earth. That He might show and lead us to salvation. So we ask questions about what does the carnation tell us and say to us about God? What does it say to us about the Son? That Jesus became man. Isn't that interesting? The Scripture says Jesus became man. It doesn't say that Jesus was born in the sense of being created. You see, that's the miracle of incarnation that Jesus became man. He, he put on flesh. He, he wasn't created in order to be born with flesh. You see, Jesus is the only person who ever chose to be born. So who is this Jesus? First of all, we reflect on Him as what we call the, the pre-existent Christ. The, the Christ who lived before He became a babe and was born on Christmas Day. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says this, Although Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, He took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. The Scripture is clear that, that Jesus pre-existed becoming a babe. He was born in Colossians, that passage again we've read already in, in chapter 1, verses 16-17, through 17, the Scripture says, All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And Jesus, His testimony in John eight fifty eight, Before Abraham was born, I am. Declaring Himself to be God but declaring that He existed. He was alive even before Abraham who for years of that day lived hundreds of years previously. You see, Jesus pre-existed as God in the heavens. But now let's talk about what, what does it mean as we talk about Jesus, the incarnate Christ. God in the flesh. John 1.1 says that the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the, the radical, revolutionary news of, of the New Testament, the Word that was God, in verse 1, the Word became flesh. And the Word dwelt among us. 
And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten Father. God became flesh. Let us not be mistaken. The bold testimony and the revelation of Scripture is that Jesus is God. John 10 verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Well, what does God look like? We might ask. The Scripture tells us that God is spirit. John 4.24 But listen to Jesus. He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? Believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father in Me. John 14.9-11 And then Colossians, we've already heard this morning, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see, when you see Jesus, you see God. So what does it mean that God the Son became man? What, what is its meaning? What is the significance? What does this mighty act of incarnation mean? How is it possible that God could become man? What happened in that, that mysterious process? The Scripture does reveal some things. and Let's talk about them very briefly as we go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7. through seven. We discover that the the Son emptied Himself. The Father filled the Son. Philippians 2, 5-7 Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself and He took on the form of a bondservant and He was made into the likeness of men. The two key words there that grip me every time that I I read this passage are the word grasped and emptied. You know, it doesn't take very long for our children to learn how to to grasp something, does it? How to hang on to something. They they learn pretty quickly that if, if they don't learn to hang on to something, it might be taken from them, especially if they have an older brother or sister. Right? And so very early on, we learn that what's ours, that we have to grasp it. We have to hang on to it. Kind of the the white knuckle effect sometimes, right? It's mine. And a lot of times that goes together. It's mine. It's mine. And we grasp things. But isn't it incredible? Isn't it beautiful? That in order for Christ to become man, that there were some things that he had to let go of. There were some things that he could not grasp any longer. But he had to learn to let go. And the Scripture uses this beautiful picture. He had to, to empty himself. And oh church, that we would learn to follow this example of our Lord who, who did not grasp, but he learned to empty and serve others. You cannot empty yourself if you are grasping at the same time. And to become man, Jesus had to let go and to empty. But now listen to what happens to the Son as a response of the Father as He lets go of Himself. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. You see, as the Son emptied, and there's mystery to that, and and we can certainly talk about what what did the Son empty Himself of. 
we'll reflect on that in a few minutes. But isn't it beautiful that as, as the son let go, as the son emptied himself, that the father said, now, as you become man, let me fill you with my fullness. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful picture of what incarnation is. An emptying and a filling. In letting go and emptying himself, the father was able to fill and to exalt the son. The second part of what it means for, for this act of incarnation is again, the son humbled himself, but the father exalted the son. Back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. It wasn't just enough that Jesus had to become man, but that He humbled Himself in the way He became man. He did not come as king. He came as bondservant. He came as submissive servant. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He submitted Himself to the Father. He submitted Himself to the men of that day. Even to the point of death on the cross. You see, the son emptied himself, but he didn't just empty himself, he humbled himself and submitted himself. And now look at verse 9 in Philippians 2. And for this reason, for which reasons? The reasons that, that, that Christ let go. The reasons that He emptied Himself. The reasons that He humbled Himself to death on the cross. Now, for this reason, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus humbles Himself and the Father exalts the Son. Now watch what happens. When the Son lets go of Himself and He empties Himself in an act of obedience, the Father is able to fill and exalt the Son in ways that glorify both the Son and the Father. You see, through the act of incarnation, the Son is glorified and the Father is glorified. We complete this beautiful passage as we continue reading in verse 9. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, excuse me, the Father exalts the Son. The Father exalts the Son so that the Son is worshipped. So that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Christ. He is Lord. And when we do that, when we worship, when we bow down, when we confess Jesus is Lord, guess what? The Father is glorified. You see, the Son is glorified and the Father is glorified because of the Son's obedient submission and humility before His Father. In John 17, verses 4-5, through we get a picture of, of a little bit of what Jesus emptied Himself of. And we see how the Son will continue to be glorified in eternity. In this priestly prayer, this prayer that is, is shared that Jesus prayed to the Father during that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, Listen to this portion in verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified Thee, I glorified the Father on the earth, having accomplished the work which Thou hast given Me to do. And now, praying to the Father, 
glorify, glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus saying now, Father, as I prepare for this, this incredibly gruesome death on the cross, and you are glorified, that I might be glorified, that I might receive, that, that you might share that glory with me again that I had before the world was even created, that I had before I left heaven to come to this place as a man. Maybe this is a picture of what Christ has emptied Himself of. And now that the Father will glorify the Son as the Son glorifies the Father. So as we talk about this miracle, this mighty act of incarnation, what does it mean for us today? I think the mighty act of incarnation, the the mighty acts that we've been looking at over these last weeks, all point us to the mighty act of salvation. If you haven't looked at, at that passage in Philippians 2, turn there very briefly. Philippians 2. This Christological hymn that we've been reading comes out of verses 5 through 11. And our temptation is simply to quit there. But Paul doesn't quit there. The next words, so then. So then what? Well, so then because of what we have just read. So then because Jesus didn't grasp but let go. So then because Jesus let go and He emptied Himself. So then because Jesus let go, He emptied Himself and He humbled Himself to the point of death so that the Father would exalt the Son. So that we might worship the Son. So that the Father would be glorified. Because of all of this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does this mean for us? What what does the so then look like? What does the so then look like in regards to to our salvation and and working that out because again, we want to say salvation is a gift of God. It's nothing that we can work out. It's received by faith. But now that we receive this salvation, Paul's testimony is now allow this to be worked out within you. So as we sit in our pews here in Norman, Oklahoma, what does it mean? What does the mighty act of salvation for us mean today? Allow me to suggest that it means the same thing to us that it meant to the Son, to Jesus. First of all, that we like Jesus learn what it means to empty ourselves. To give ourselves over to Christ, to the Father. To die to ourselves, to give ourselves completely. And the the beauty and the miracle of salvation is that as we make that commitment, as we make that act of will to empty ourselves, that guess what? The Father fills us. The Father fills us with His Spirit. That we might know His will and His purposes and plans for ourselves. But what else would it mean? It it certainly means that we empty ourselves, but that we learn to humble ourselves. We learn... 
to serve. We, we learn that just as Jesus came as, as a bondservant to all, up in verses 3, just as Jesus shared this attitude of, of doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarded one another as more important than Himself, and do not merely look out for your own interests, but the interests of others, that we humble ourselves and we serve others and we discover how we can be a blessing through our own humility. And as we bless ourselves, as we bless those around us, as we humble ourselves, I believe that God will lift us, will exalt us, not in any kind of way that brings glory to us, but in a way that God honors the humble servant. In the way that God, as the parable says, takes us from the, the bottom chair and for His glory would move you to the head of the table. You see, there's so many in our world that are trying to exalt themselves. And God says that we're to humble ourselves. Lastly, what does it mean? What does salvation mean? What does it mean to empty ourselves and to humble ourselves? I mean, think it means to, to live a life that brings glory to God. To glory and glorify God in all that we do. And to receive His glory as a result. That's an interesting concept as we talk about what, what glorification means for us as the culmination of our salvation as we move from this life to the next. But listen to the passages that reflect on this. 1 Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this, it was for salvation that He called you through our Gospel. That you, that, that we may attain, may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus says, the glory which you have given me, he's speaking to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. See, the purpose of the incarnation is the salvation of men and the glory of God. So this morning, the question that we must all ask is, is what is keeping you from salvation? What is keeping your life from, from bringing about the glory of God? What's keeping you from giving God the glory He deserves? What are you grasping and hanging on to today? What have you taken for yourself and you have turned your back on God and said, this is mine? The Father would come to you today and say, you know, isn't it time to empty yourself? To let go. To give this up. Today is the day to empty yourself. Today is the day to humble yourself. Today is the day to make yourself available to God so that He might fill you with His Spirit. He might bring His gift of salvation unto you so that you might receive His grace, His forgiveness, His love. Today is the day that you can glorify God and let Him exalt you for His own glory. Today is the day to begin working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Letting God in you work for His will and His pleasure. Let's pray.